Hey there. This week, we're excited to share a podcast from M Pavilion, Australia's leading architecture commission. The M Pavilion M Talk series brings together some of Melbourne's brightest and most creative minds. This episode is part of an M Talks event that took place at the end of 2021, exploring the role of data, knowledge, and design in amplifying access to the ideas moving around the city. We think you'll enjoy it. Hassle Talks will be back next week. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much for coming. It's absolutely magnificent to be here. It's even better that it's not raining yet. Um, So we'll get through this before the storm clouds arrive. Um, It's fantastic to be here. We've we've heard about data as illumination. We've heard about knowledge as illumination. And this third session is about design as illumination. Um, uh, I'm Steve Coster. I'm the Managing Director of Hassel. We're an architecture and design firm working around the world, including here in Melbourne. And hopefully we're creating places that people love um, through that work. I'm stoked about this panel because this is literally four of my favourite people in Melbourne. Um, And I think they've got a lot to add to the conversation. Um, And we'll get to them in a second. I think first, design, it's a really interesting time for design as the previous two panels sort of highlighted because of the complexity of the context that we're dealing with and um, the pressure on a lot of these issues. And of course, you can have data and you can have knowledge, but at some point, someone's got to create that future. Um, Someone's got to draw something on a page and create what we're going to do with all of that. And illumination's an interesting way of thinking about it, I think, because we've got an opportunity to choose which things we illuminate for the future through design. Um, And that's our role that we can play in creating a future that's better um, and something we can all look forward to. So each of these people, I think, have a perspective on that, um, which would be good to hear from. We've got Sue, who designs experiences from Free State, the world's leading experience master planning agency. Um, So they create experiences. We've got Hannah who who creates festivals, the Rising Festival, sort of uh, events and and, and experiences in the city through arts and culture. Tim from Arab, who sort of, I guess, represents technical expertise and know-how and how to bring things together to make things happen. And we've got Ross, who for me represents responsibility for the future in design. Ross from, from Finding Infinity, and some of you might know him from his work um, through our new normal, amongst other things, um, making Melbourne and other cities a producer of resources instead of a consumer of resources. So, Sue, I think you were going to kick things off, and I'm really interested in thinking about the role of creating experiences and thinking from an experience perspective about the city and about places, because post-pandemic, 
there's probably a risk of trying to deal with practical, um, pragmatic issues through design, how to stop disease spreading, how to make the city efficient, how to keep people separate that should be separate, how to optimise things. But actually the life of the city doesn't come from that stuff, does it? It comes from other things. No. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about efficiency, you know, because I think there has been a lot of conversation about designing for efficiency, the frictionless city, the seamless journey. Um, And whilst, you know, we don't want lots of friction in our lives, I think we need some. Uh, I think it is about uh, creating visceral and physical experiences that attract our attention, that make us stop in our tracks, um, you know, bring us to the present, if you like, so that we become open to, um, you know, new ideas uh, to the point of our illumination, you know. So absolutely opening our minds up to, to different things. It's why we travel. It's why, you know, we don't want to look at art on a Zoom. We'd rather do it in a museum. Um, you know, we, we absolutely need that um, change in pace so that we can open ourselves up to, uh, to learning, you know, roaming entropy, as they say. And so is the current situation making that easier to talk about with people or more challenging because of what the world's been facing? Yeah, I think we're certainly finding it easier as people start to ask us, um, you know, how do we attract people back to our places? Um, You know, how do we get them involved? Uh, And, you know, we certainly talk about attraction as being, you know, a moment of collision, if you like, Um, a moment that that does kind of surprise, you know. I mean, it might be like this M Pavilion in the park where you've got people wandering around going on their evening stroll and they come across this thing and all of a sudden, you know, there's a group of people gathering talking about all sorts of things. Fantastic. And Hannah, in the festival, I mean... That's something that's sort of illuminated in a way that's that's inherently temporal, right? It's temporary. It's, it sort of pops up and then disappears again and lives on in people's memories. What role do you want to play in the city the way it should be in the future and other events like that? What role should they play? Yeah, um, I, I definitely think of festivals as uh, their purpose being to mark a moment in time and... Um, and it was to reflect a place, to reflect the community. So they are inherently ephemeral. But I, I've been thinking a lot since we started about how, um, how you can kind of elongate that impact and also how you can reach uh, wider audiences and, you know, echoing what Sue was saying about, about that sense of happening upon something becomes an invitation, becomes a really broad invitation to the general community that might not be in the know, who might not um, be able to afford a ticket to a show. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the thinking that we've been doing is is how to create those um, moments in public art, but also thinking about how public art can be defined. How do we use performance, sound, light, technology to stretch out what that can be and how long it can sit in place? So, and what's your time span when you're thinking about that? How much are you trying to connect to into that event? I think I'm trying to find projects that can exist. I'm going to be very specific now. (laughs) Um, 
somewhere between, you know, more than two weeks, which is your general festival duration, and less than 50 years, which is your general, you know, major public artwork. Um, that there's a whole lot of space in between that hasn't really been that thoroughly explored from a, a city perspective, mm -hmm. I would say. And people must be feeling like they appreciate those kind of events and instances more than ever right now, don't you think? Are they, they pining for yeah. unexpected, meaningful experiences? Well, I, I know I am. It's certainly... Um, I think the loss of spontaneity uh, in, during the pandemic was one of the things I missed the most. Um, just that, you know, ability to not know what your day or night or week was necessarily going to entail. And um, one of the best things that happened to me in the last two years actually was walking along this river and um, I noticed uh, Deborah Cheatham, who's an incredible artist and opera singer, uh, in a boat um, on the river and she was doing a listening trip um, to for some research for a project that she was doing for Rising. Um, and I just flagged her down and we got in the boat and went on this little listening trip together. And it sparked a whole lot of ideas that became the foundation for the next program. <clears throat> but that was something that just most people weren't able to access, I guess, you know, in the last two years that just happening upon a person that you admire or a piece of work that you admire and being inspired by it. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Tim, what, what would you like to illuminate in the city now that we've got this opportunity post-pandemic, bringing things back together? What are you trying to highlight through your work? I know you've been working on that dad joke um, the whole evening. Um, as a lighting designer, just to fill in the blanks <laughs> for everyone else. Um, You're the only person here with a legitimate sure. basis to talk about illumination. It's interesting, though, because when we look around the city, um, often architectural lighting design uh, seems to be the bastion of, um, you know, projects like this or the NGV or very special projects. I liken lighting design sometimes to, like, sprinkles on the ice cream. You know, some people just enjoy the ice cream, but often it's a little bit better with the sprinkles. And so... We don't always get appointed in some of the more 50-year projects that you talk about, Hannah. Um, and for me, it's about how do we influence and how do we understand and, and I guess share the stories and get people to think about what the nighttime means to them. So I'm not going to talk about lux levels or anything technical or boring, rest assured. Um, I'm not actually interested in them myself, uh, to be fair, because that's not how people see and it's not how people experience um, and so I like to think that we can use this time to reflect on how we could uh, use the trust, and that's something that we've already spoken about earlier. The last panel was talking about trust and cultural institutions. Um, I first sort of come across that concept um, with Rose Hiscock, who's the director of the Science Gallery. She did a lecture recently on, on that, and I was like, oh, yeah. In a time where um, government doesn't exactly instill trust in many of us, um, how could we use cultural institutions or events or experiences? How can we bring those out into the everyday? And not to oversaturate us, of course, but how do we take... Think about the mindset you'd go into if you went into the gallery across the road and the um, openness you're probably into in terms of opportunities and, and new experiences. If you could bring this out into the public realm using a lot of the influence of the data that we listened to before, both uh, macro and micro, I just think it's a real opportunity to, to think about lighting or illumination 
um, in terms of night time and how do we experience that night time. So that's my two, Penneth. No, that's great. I mean, there was mention earlier about how important it is to have a more inclusive way of thinking about cities too and, and experiences. And I know you've done some really interesting work in that space too, thinking about how, how different types of people experience the city at different times of the day and how that plays into the sort of work you do. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Of course. Any opportunity I can get, um, actually. Uh, so as a lighting designer at Arup, um, we have partnered with the XYX Lab at Monash University. Um, so we did some work with them about two years ago, maybe three now. It's hard to tell with time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was about... Um, we were fascinated by um, their free-to-be crowdsourcing um, work that they did with the app um, targeted at women and girls. You drop a pen and you share your experience. Um, so many of those experiences were uh, actually bad at night. And it was, the light makes me feel like crap or the light makes me feel good. Now, that's not really a technical appraisal. It's hard to glean that key information. But what we've been doing is listening to those stories and actually going out to 84 sites around Melbourne um, and understanding what makes that so. And so we're measuring a lot of technical stuff, but also creative stuff, but also, you know, is it a park or is it a laneway? And that really influences things. So in such a diverse gender balance we've got here tonight, I'm not going to lecture women on women's safety, but for me it's completely changed the way I practice urban lighting and it's incredibly uh, empowering and there's so much that can be done. We're just at the start of the journey. Thanks, Tim. It's good. Um, Last but not least, definitely not least, Ross, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, You've been doing some really, really interesting work illuminating critical issues, I think, through design. Um, And in particular, interestingly, um, following on from some of the comments earlier about how to bring these problems and arts and culture together to bring attention in a way that other ways haven't seemed to be able to do. I know that's something you're passionate about. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been trying to illuminate recently? Sure. Um, I'll try and fly through it quickly because I can go on. But um, uh, basically, I mean, it kind of fits with the flow of the evening in terms of sort of, um, how was it? Data, knowledge and then design. Mm -hmm. So we we spent about two years uh, running numbers on kind of due to frustration of realising there was no plan in the city of how to get to 100% renewable energy, water neutrality or zero waste. We basically just, um, me and uh, uh, Will who works with me, we spent about two years running calculations on what it would uh, cost to transform all of Greater Melbourne to a completely self-sufficient city. And we spat out a number of $100 billion and found that it would create um, 80,000 jobs in construction and 40,000 jobs um, ongoing from there and pay for itself in less than 10 years. So it sounded like some cool numbers, data, um, but no one really cared. <laughs> we presented it to state government and they kind of said, look, it's really cool, but we won't do it. It's too, too ambitious, too risky. So we invited 15 of Melbourne's best architects over to my living room in Fitzroy um, and had a little dinner, a candlelit dinner with wine and basically just poured our heart out and said, hey guys, do you want to help us translate this $100 billion project into 15 tangible projects we can find sites and funds for? Um, 
And then we, I guess where it went from there was we, we launched it through social media and maybe a couple of thousand people started following and all, like collectively the Instagram accounts, the architects were already pretty strong. But still no one really knew what we were talking about and no one really engaged with it all that well. And then cultural institution, NGV, like Ewan has actually been really supportive the whole way through. He encouraged us to launch it at Design Week. City of Melbourne gave us some funds and we ended up taking over a rooftop in the city. And we built 15 installations that could physically exemplify what we were talking about to be able to kind of create an experience, a feeling of what the future might feel like. And we launched the 15 projects, and that was in March. And um, it was kind of, yeah, I feel like it was years of trying to convince people to sort of hear what we were proposing. And then somehow following that, everyone started to hit us up. It was, it was quite amazing. And we've now got six of the 15 projects funded already. Um, one of them's already started in construction. And um, actually, a number of these projects are then being used, so it's... We're basically building pilot projects across the city. Um, and probably the most exciting one is energy efficiency retrofit, is that it's then led to um, CFMEU contacting us, um, and now they want to build five examples themselves and use that to inform policy. So I guess it's been sort of... The, the whole pitch was integrating the physical infrastructure that makes the city work with the cultural infrastructure that enables us all to thrive. And so it's really like kind of an unusual take on the whole topic, but indirectly approaching it, basically. Yeah, but it's a great example of, of bringing together that diversity in, that, in the ecosystem of people, right? You were tapping into a network that was about designing an experience in, an, in a festival, interestingly enough, some people who knew how to actually put it together and you started to get traction that you couldn't, no one could have gotten alone. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, well, to start with, really, design was the key. You know, like, it was until until pre-getting all the architects involved, no one knew what we were doing. And then once we all the architects got involved, actually, it, like, it, you know, I literally saw at that dinner the project go from being our little idea to being collectively owned by these, like, 15 awesome firms. And that was kind of step one, is kind of bringing people together. But then I think the next big step was um, the way I see events. I actually, like, learnt some of this stuff from throwing solar-powered techno parties <laughs> and um, really realised, like, of all the different consulting projects I did over the years, no one gave a shit. Basically just doing numbers and writing reports. Like, no one really, like, no one did anything that we told them to do. No one really read the report. No one really cared about it. But every year we'd throw a solar-powered techno party and tell people music sounds better when it comes from the sun. And they all wanted to know more about it. And so we realised that it wasn't solar and music, it was technology and culture. And so that's kind of how we broke down the strategy, is we like asked all the architects to come up with ways of sort of not... The way I see it is like old school environmentalism is basically I'm a hippie and I'm telling everyone else what I know and you'll need to change and you know the, the you know you're all wrong and that's kind of awareness. And I think the future of environmentalism is empathy. I don't think we have enough time to convince the whole world to give a shit. I think we've the like the radical transformation that we have to do is so it's so rapid that we actually just need to get on with it whether people care or not. 
And so the, the project was about trying to empathise with the people of Melbourne to engage them in these initiatives, whether they are you know, believers or not, whether they care or not, but just um, love the projects for what they are and love the cultural connection and allow the technical kind of solution to just unfold. Thanks, Ross. So, so Sue, coming back to you then, I mean, because that's really the same thing you're trying to do, if I understand correctly, that you know, you can tell people over and over, but unless they feel something through the experience, their behaviour is unlikely to change. Um, the world's sort of cottoning onto that, isn't it? And cottoning onto the fact that designing that to happen in an authentic way is actually a lot harder, harder than it seems, and certainly difficult to do within traditional discipline silos. So. How are you going trying to help people do that and realise how differently they have to practise to achieve it? Yeah, I think the, um, the, this word has come up in all, all the panels and that's about participation. Um, and so, you know, a really key part of our practice is absolutely in participatory co-design. Um, so absolutely getting the people who you're designing for involved in the design itself as opposed to the sort of traditional fountainhead, you know, version of design as being, you know, from above, if you like. Um, so, you know, and I think various people um, through the night have talked about this, you know, for the community, by the community. Um, and, you know, an example of this and sort of going linking back to, you know, what I was saying about friction, if you compare, say, um, the Amazon Go stores where you can basically go to a shop and get all the things you want and walk out and it'll charge you, you don't have to talk to anyone, you don't have to do anything, just, you know, grab and go, versus um, a concept called Hyperburgers um, which is uh, a community supermarket, essentially, where the entire community brings what they want to sell, they exchange it, and it's absolutely about the community, you know, for the community, not for business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so really starting to, to get communities involved in, in running their own lives, I suppose, in a way, designing for themselves and, and everyone can be a designer. Yeah, and you were talking earlier about inconvenience, a sort of level of friction and inconvenience in that. I mean, that's playing out in every workplace in Melbourne at the moment, right? Because getting your, your task list done is more efficient when you're at home by yourself. But, geez, it's boring. And, and the inconvenience and inefficiencies of bumping into people at work or in the street or on the river, in your case, Hannah, or wherever it might be, you know, probably very inconvenient to suddenly go on a boat trip up the river, but highly valuable despite being inconvenient. So in, the, in all this discussion about coming back to the city and work, creating space for that inherent inefficiency is going to be a key role, isn't it, in speaking up for that? Yeah, I think so. I think designers do need to think about, you know, that designing for friction. Um, you know, another example that Prue in the audience shared with me earlier this week was, uh, you know, the snowstorm um, in a pub uh, in North Yorkshire um, where friction, you know, in the form of snow um, basically uh, trapped a whole bunch of people in a pub for four days, three days, four days, you know, and that was probably a terrible thing for them at the time, but 
it was a community building belonging thing, you know. Um, you know, they were invited to participate in karaoke and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, by the end of the three days, they didn't want to leave. You know, they'd formed all of these fantastic relationships and God knows, you know, that might be the thing that they talk about for the rest of their lives in terms of, you know, the, the things that happened to them. So I think we've got to be open for that and not, you know, trying to raise everything to to this sort of, you know, seamless world. Is that the role of these events, Hannah, to sort of s- stimulate or instigate unexpected things? Is that what you meant by spontaneity earlier? I used, used to have a colleague who said a great office, a great workplace should be like a cocktail party because you should come across people you didn't know and ideas you didn't know to ask about and is that what a festival does, a good a good arts festival? Yeah, exactly. I think it does create opportunities for people to meet each other, to participate, I guess, in like a, a grand public ritual of some kind. But there's sort of authenticity that Sue's talking about at a snowstorm in a pub, which sounds so brilliant. I wish I was there. <laughs> um, that's much harder to just manufacture. You, you can't just program that. That is something that requires being connected to communities and allowing time and space for things to come from a community rather than be laid on top of it. Um, And, you know, one of the... To give a kind of example of this, I guess, is um, when we first started thinking about this festival and thinking about Melbourne and, you know, walking around the river and the parks and the city and trying to understand where is there space for this gathering, where is there a gap that's not already you know, being filled elsewhere by the NGV and all the major institutions. And, you know, we look to where is the natural atmosphere and uh, vibe, I guess, in the city. And and Chinatown was one place that really stood out with this incredible history, this uh, incredible sort of mixing of cultures. Um, You know, it's not perfect. It's full of kind of, um, you know, idiosyncrasies and, uh, you know, uh, what you would probably think is bad design in lots of ways, but it has um, incredible natural atmosphere and all we needed to do was bring a little bit of art to that mm-hmm. and lay it on top rather than start from the beginning building that in a white cube. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what you, you, you get out, what you put in too, right? So if you want to be transactional, you'll get a transactional level of input if you can let people participate, you'll get something deeper, more like co-creation. But I'm really interested in that in relation to, you know, engaging with First Nations people around some of the design issues that were mentioned in the preceding panels. You can't turn up late and get that input. You have to have invested in the conversation. And is is that something that you thought about? You talked about timelines and Mm. how much to engage with history to have a meaningful discussion in the present, you've got to be doing that really ahead of time, don't you, in that community? Yeah, I guess it's like any relationship. You've got to invest some time. Um, I've been very fortunate to have um, traditional owner elders and, you know, artistic associates who are first peoples who've, uh, you know, brought their knowledge and their way of thinking to us and it's been incredible, um, incredibly expansive for me. Um, and one of the, the things that's been most 
uh, clear, I guess, is just that idea of culture being central. It's not something that's decorative or optional in any way. It is central to life. And um, that has been something that we're just trying to uh, instill in all of our partners, all of our relationships, all of our stakeholders, terrible word, but, you know, to just to really try and bring that um, idea and that methodology of some things, some great things take time. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't just switch it off and switch it back on when the pandemic's finished and still expect to have a culture in your city. Yeah, yeah and you also can't fly it in, yeah. you know. It's, yeah. It is something, like, I'm not, I'm not saying I, I, we, we should be cut off from the world, but there is something really valuable about uh, working locally and being able to really um, take advantage of the culture that is here. That sounds bad, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. build yeah. on it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it gives people a huge sense of pride. You know, I remember seeing Melbourne Now open at the NGV and it was really um, an important moment for Melbourne. I think people really understood the breadth and depth of artistic output because of that show. It was important. Yeah. So, Tim, you're, you're involved not just through your specific discipline but the firm more broadly are, you know, in, in designing a large parts of, the, of our cities, right? I mean, how do you see that that is changing? Is it responding to all these issues that have been brought up tonight in a good way? Is it, is it heading in the right direction, the way we create our cities for the future? I'd like to think so broadly, um, but I also think um, that we can't be scared to slip up. We can't be scared to not ask a question that we're afraid of the answer, I don't want to look stupid, or, or even to the point where we might offend someone. We need to be um, obviously cautious of that, but it's all part of learning. And so I like to think that we're heading in the right direction. I think that um, problems these days, to sort of to your point as well, Ross, is that um, problems these days tend to be, or ones worth solving, are too complex to do on your own. Mm-hmm. And some people might go, oh, gee, that's too hard or it's too big, where do we start? But like the dinner party idea, you know, a different way um, of, of sort of brokering a, a problem or a proposition, and you can see the, um, the momentum that it's generated and the, the greatness that will come from it. And I'd actually argue that it's more fun so, like, I find working across, at our, across a load of different disciplines, I get to work with you guys quite often. Um, that's awesome. I'm forever learning. Um, there's Niels in the crowd here, uh, you know, working at Melbourne Connect, um, doing these problems, which I had... One, one project I had to put my hand up and say, it's got no lights in it anymore. Um, I need some help. And that was quite confronting, um, the little AV screens now. But it was cool to be able to say to my neighbour, hey, help me out here. Um, AV team type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that the outcome's quite impressive for that. Um, but I just think there's so much opportunity. We shouldn't be scared. Um, we, we're, there's, there's listening to the people talk tonight, there's so many different perspectives on it. Um, you know, your work, um, Hannah, is, is influencing my work. Like people going, oh, we want art, artistic projections or we want, you know, this thing I saw at a festival. It's like, well, that's pretty cool how that's starting to influence um, what we can do in, in city shaping because we have a great responsibility. I think it's about actually getting the right people um, on board to get those sort of outcomes that we all desire. And Ross, you said something interesting earlier about there was a point where you had where you could stop pushing your idea and people started pulling it from you. Um, there was a question earlier about how people are responding to new ideas. 
how, how have you experienced that, trying to get new ideas in front of the right kind of people who could make things happen? Are you finding there's resistance? Do people want to, want to go there and just need to know how? Or how are we going to get there? Um, I think you can kind of design it in the sense that um, coming back to like the events type scenario, the way I see something is a from temporary you can create permanence and in a temporary experience you can put something so f like radical forwards that none would ever build permanently and you can pop people into that space and you can like demonstrate it and ensure that it feels good. And to me, like, uh, basically what changed for us was that basically the NGV pushed what we did hard and we got a lot of press. And then that gave the project substance. It validated it. And now um, people think it's a serious thing. Do you know what I mean? But really it's like still just like me and Will punching numbers behind the scenes basically. But it's got a lot of uh, endorsement from a lot of people. And I think that um, that's what I've learned along the way anyway. Like, I think an idea could be good or bad, but I think if you um, are strategic about how you, like, it unfolds and kind of bring enough, like, for me, very much bringing people together was really helpful. And also, I don't know, we kind of keep talking to people about the individual projects as the godfather. It's like make them an offer they can't refuse. And it's kind of like there's something in it for everyone, you know, like it's kind of, and I, I, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but I think like to me there's so many incredible ideas and so many incredible things that need to happen and can happen. But I think particularly something of that scale is impossible uh, and what I found was like particularly the public sector, the private sector and the people are doing completely different things and they're not, no one's trying to bring that together. So that was really helpful for us looking at it going, I don't even understand the public sector. Like we work with the private sector and we know people kind of, but I'm not an expert on it. And we just had a go, kind of like you said, we just were prepared to fail and have a crack and had a bit of a theory on it and just... To be honest, I also think, like, just actually trying to do something, like, that was kind of, for me, I mean, I think anyone knows that's been involved in it, like, we worked really hard. <laughs> it's, like, it's like my obsession. And, I mean, we just, we followed through with what we are doing, and I think there's a lot of ideas that get put out there, but without kind of, um, like, a plan of how to deliver. And so the way I explain the project is, like, you know, there's, if you're talking about why you need to do something like transform a city to be self-sufficient, like, you're having the wrong conversation. If you're talking about what needs to happen, and I think this kind of, like, the how, the what, and the why, I think also relates to, for me, democracy and topics as well. I find it interesting is, like, it's, it's related to the audience. So for me, it was like, the why, skip it, like, we're past that. What? was a kind of a technical conversation and I think the general public get caught up in should we do solar, should we do batteries, should we have electric cars like geothermal, everyone feels like they need to have a PhD on the topic. Whereas like actually you could, we pretty much did this, we put the technical strategy together and presented it to the engineers in Melbourne and everyone kind of, we basically got consensus, you know, and so 
to me that like there was a, a focus of the what and then it was like actually the project was all about the how and I think like people could feel that in what we were doing that they felt like you know even like Ewan from the NGV just was constantly like supporting us because he could tell that we weren't just talking ideas and pitching a possible future we were just ready to as soon as we launched like you know every night I just get up and be like all right we want a site and funds for all of these projects like we need to make this happen and that's been constantly the focus so yeah it's good it's really good and what I like about the the sort of common theme between all these things is this role of the unexpected yeah I um my colleagues at Hassel I challenge them a lot to talk about what they mean by great design. Like, what, what does that actually mean? And one of the best answers I think that they've sort of landed on a little bit is that great design feels both unexpected and yet obvious at the same time. You know, it's, it's something that you didn't quite expect to see, but as soon as you see it, it makes total sense. Um, and, and, and you're prepared to sort of go with it from there because, because of that. But the role of the unexpected to instigate a kind of connection or an emotional response is, is something common in, in what a lot of you are talking about. So an, an unexpected experience, so you, you would be arguing for an unexpected collision or experience of sorts in order to change people's behaviour. What kind of unexpected experiences are you, are you talking about? What do you mean by that? Perhaps we could do a little experiment and show you. Uh, in the spirit of participation, we're actually going to do a little of experiment here. So I'd like you to stand up and for everybody to come in to the pavilion. So this is probably something unexpected. <laughs> and hopefully memorable. So what I'm going to ask you to do is participate in creating a soundscape. So the sun is going down. Uh, we want to be a bit COVID safe, so we're going to hum rather than sing. And maybe just start off small and get louder as we go and see how long we want to stay there for. All right? Okay. Let's just start with a low hum. Try and build it up and get louder. Come on, I can't hear you. Okay, so maybe that will. So that is just an example, really simple one, obviously, of just getting people involved in something, you know, so that you do it together. And I think the key thing that you're asking about, the unexpected allows people to have a shared experience that they can kind of do together and in creating sort of emotional, you know, so it's like what Ross was saying, if you do something a bit different, then you're creating an emotional response and that emotional response kind of releases endorphins and creates that feeling of belonging together, which is what we're trying to do. When you belong together, then you, that can lead to action. 
Um, so that's... That, that is an extraordinary example and not what I expected. So unexpected. Um, but also creating the kind of Thank aw you. awkwardness that Bonnie Shaw really likes to create as well. So that's good. Um, Thank you so much. It's a really interesting discussion. Does anyone have any questions for the panel in the few minutes that we've got left? I know some very some people with who usually have great questions in the audience. Annie and Prue and Andrew and Kayla. So question there, Annie? Aside from humming, which is obviously an excellent way to get people to come together, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how important it is to design the process for co-creation and, and what the sort of key elements are for a successful co-creation process. Yeah, great. Great question. Um, first of all, I think it's really important to frame, you know, what it is that you're trying to solve for. Um, and absolutely involve the people that it is impacting, if you like. So whether um, if you think about a, um, a community project and, you know, we recently, you know, I've got Jess in the audience here who, you know, recently did a project for um, the city of Ballarat for Bridge Mall. Um, so, you know, it's a highly public space trying to attract um, a whole lot of different and diverse communities into the centre of Ballarat. And, of course, Ballarat has this incredible layered history and layered series of stories. Um, and so in order to kind of bring this place to life, what we did was um, actually got people in the community to design with us if you like. So um, there was, you know, um, people from the Indigenous community, the traders community, a historian, um, an events person. Um, so, you know, people who actually did it with us as opposed to us kind of doing it for them. Um, and I think that's a really critical part of the process. Um, one, you're actually getting that authenticity um, around the solution. Two, you've got ownership and buy-in uh, you know, to the point around creating change. Okay, Thanks. Sue. Any other questions? Yes. Should I repeat the question? Yeah, Just have, okay. um, it was uh, how I initially presented the strategy to all the architects, so it made, brought it to life for them. Is that a fair summary? Um, uh, we, we're actually, like, quite a communicative firm. Like, we sort of do a lot of graphics and are pretty high on communications. Um, so we did have, like, quite a lot of diagrams, graphs and all this sort of stuff. But to be honest, like... We would, had personal relationships with all of them and they kind of all were... I probably just called them all up beforehand and said, hey, do you want to help us out, do a render? And everyone was like, yeah, cool, we'll come over for dinner, we'll work it out. And then we just brought everyone together. I probably just poured my heart out for 30 minutes and just got everyone to kind of, uh, like, know what we were kind of pitching. And to be honest, like, 
I'm not sure if everyone fully understood what they were getting themselves into, and I don't think we really did either. Like, I think it was more of an exercise of um, bringing... It really did, like, kind of... Everyone's involvement amplified the whole thing. And I think the crazy thing as well that I learned out of it was I didn't... I guess, I don't know, i got two older brothers that are architects. Like, we've always been obsessed with architecture in my family. I'm, I'm an engineer, but I, I think I probably miss, I'm, like, calculated how competitive architects are. <laughs> and, like, the, it actually went from being a simple render to, like, everyone was, like, you know, it kind of, everyone started coming in to present theirs, and it, it built it up. And it was really... Um, and even just... Get, getting that crew together, like some people were umming and ahhing and finally when everyone else knew, everyone else was involved. And I, I think that's been a little bit of the project is like gaining some critical mass and kind of um, even, like even where it's going now is that, you know, by, by it like looking like we're working with City of Melbourne, which we're not, they're not, we're not really, like we're kind of done some numbers around the city, but not formally engaged by them. Um, other cities now, like we're, we're in serious conversations with Perth, Adelaide, Auckland, um, and um, yeah, so it's, I don't know, that whole kind of critical mass is probably the thing, yeah. Thanks very much. Uh, so back in the day, uh, yeah, you've won a park project, you get the book out, look at the numbers, do the calcs, off you go. Now we use data. Um, it's the voices of women and girls in this specific work that I'm doing at the moment, and we hope that this is just the start um, of the data set we can use, the one available. Your ground is out at the moment as well with XYX Lab. The report mentions lighting 120 times. Um, so I think people are starting to get the message. Accessibility is the next one um, for us, is to look for that universal design. Without the data, it'd just be me ranting, so I hear, <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> But yeah, it backs me up. It's not just me ranting. It's the voice of others. And again, uh, it goes from being something that you do with your eyes as to something that you do actually with your heart because it's amazing the power of that journey alongside others. Uh, what I learn, what they learn, and then hopefully what we can create together without data doesn't exist. Um, for us, we use place intelligence data. We use uh, consumer research and user research. Um, and I think, you know, it is both qual and quant. Um, and I think that's actually re the really important piece. So, you know, absolutely get your range of data sources, but then understand what it means with the people that you're using it for. Um, Data for like cultural institutions or performing arts is often collected via surveys in terms of responding in a, in a programming sense. And those surveys are largely completed by um, middle-aged white women like myself. Um, so when we started, we just, we really started looking at how do we collect data in the first place? How do we get real data and how do we reflect the demographics of Melbourne more accurately within our organisation and within our program? So that was really uh, an, an exercise in doing our own independent research, you know, rather than relying on tools we had to hand. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's probably all we've, all we've got time for. Um, thank you for coming. Hopefully 
that journey through the three panels is, I think, a good reflection of what we can do if we think together across data and across knowledge and into design um, and hopefully go beyond just getting back to a new normal and instead create some kind of, you know, something else, the new beautiful or something that's a bit more powerful and a bit more meaningful than um, life back to normal. Um, so, yeah, thanks for coming. I'm sure all of you being here is a reflection of wanting to be part of that. Um, as we do. So if we can keep the conversation going, get yourselves a drink from the bar. Bonnie, is there anything you or Bree or the team or Annie or anyone would like to say to wrap things up? Thanks for organising. Thanks for having us at the M Pavilion. Thanks for coming along. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.